Hello and welcome to Crossing Channels, a podcast collaboration between the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. In this series, we'll use the interdisciplinary strength of both institutions to explore some of the many complex challenges facing our societies. I'm Rory Catlin-Jones, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about why have economists ignored nature for so long? Now they've discovered it, are they measuring it correctly? This question is particularly relevant at the moment as we record the week after COP26 closed in Glasgow. Today we'll discuss some of the recent trends in environmental policy, the different ways in which nature and the economy interact, and what the impact could be of making it integral to how we see the economy. To explore these issues today, our first guest is Matthew Agawala from the Bennett Institute. Matthew, remind us of your main research interests. Thank you. My name is Matthew. I'm an economist. I work on productivity, sustainability and greening the financial system. Excellent. Sounds a busy life. Our second guest is Christina Penasco, also from the Bennett Institute. So, Christina, tell us briefly about your research. Thank you, Rory. Well, I do public policies and innovation in green and renewable energy and energy efficiency technologies with a focus on the evaluation of policy instruments for the low-carbon transition. And our final guest is Nicola Tresh from the Institute of Advanced Studies in Toulouse. Nicola, what do you focus on? Hello. Yeah. So uh, I'm working on decision theory. That's my background. But in terms of applied field, I'm working on in environmental economics and more recently on the economics of animal welfare, which is really a niche, niche topic in economics. Let's dive straight in by challenging the title of this discussion. Is it true, Matthew, as that until recently, many mainstream economists just ignored nature as something that needed to be factored into the economy? On the one hand, yes. Over the past half century, economists have largely ignored and omitted the natural environment. That's climate change, biodiversity, and ecosystems. But on the other hand, we have also seen a few pioneers in the field, Professor Sarpartha Dasgupta, Lord Nicholas Stern, and others around the world who have deliberately brought nature, climate change, biodiversity, ecosystems, air quality, straight into the heart of economic modeling. There's now an entire field of environmental and resource economics. And in fact, we're so mature, we've even had a, our first schism. And we now have a spin-off field of ecological economics as well. So what this tells me is that if you go back to the traditional models over the past half century, you'll see a severe lack of the environment. But if you look for it, you can find environment and climate straight in to the heart of economic analysis. Nicola Tresh, didn't it used to be, though, that governments, the media and so on, would present policies on climate change and conservation policy as a trade-off? You can save this much nature, but at a cost of this much to the economy. And is that changing now that we're getting word of, you know, green new deals, the green recovery and so on? Yeah, this is true that um, we usually present the issue related to environment as a trade-off. And I think it is a trade-off because uh, investing to protect nature, reducing our greenhouse gases emissions are costly. At the end of the day, it is a trade-off and we see how difficult it is to reach some agreement related to uh, climate change, for instance. And this simply shows that there is a trade-off. 
as an economist, I'm usually quite uh, skeptical about this narrative, which consists in presenting the investment in the environment as a win-win. It's, in general, it's not a win-win. It's a cost for the economy, but it's a benefit for the environment and then for, for uh, humans or future generation and so on. And we should take it as a trade-off and we should ex explore very carefully this trade-off. And this is the, the way it should be. And it is most of the time in economics. It's a trade-off that we carefully fully uh, study. Christina Pinieska, is that how you see it? Because we do hear a lot these days about green new deals, the green recovery and so on. Do you see the two as being, you know, economic growth and dealing with climate change really being in conflict and there, there being a trade-off? Actually, I have a slightly different view than Nicola. I think there is a cost for the economy in the short term, but this will be basically compensated in the long term. If we don't act now, the cost of reducing emissions, the cost of decarbonization will be way bigger in the future. And the cost of inaction is way bigger, the cost of putting money right now on decarbonizing economies and on taking care of the, of the environment. The tricky part here, from my point of view and from what evidence says, is that the design of the policies are the ones that can transform the trade-offs. That is true that we see certain elements of trade-offs available in terms of competitiveness and jobs and all that when we put in place certain policies. But the design of the policies, if we do it rightly and in the right way, can actually transform these traders into co-benefits. And we have evidence about, about that. And have you seen that develop over the last decade in you know, mainstream and less mainstream economists that they have come up with research that proves the case you're arguing? We've seen a change in the type of evidence we've seen in the last year. And I think very recently, this uh, narrative about instead of cost and benefits of the low carbon transition as risks and opportunities have allowed us to change the paradigm somehow. So more and more academics and I think policymakers are analyzing environmental issues and sustainability from a risk opportunity point of view more than cost benefit analysis. And this has changed how we, we see things, we analyze things. There are more and more uh, economists taking this narrative, I think, into account when we analyze and develop our own policy evaluations. Now, another trend in environmental policy is the wider awareness of, of just what pollutes, apart from the more obvious uh, energy and transport sectors. We're being encouraged as individuals as well to reduce, for instance, our consumption of meat, single-use plastic, fast fashion. Is there a limit to this idea that we should rely on individual choice? And at what point should the state start enforcing an industry-level policy? Matthew? It's a great question. It, I've been asked this a hundred times over the past two weeks whilst I was in Glasgow at COP. The reality is that there's a lot that each of us could do as individuals, but it varies based on our lifestyles and our personal circumstances. If you're somebody who eats a lot of meat and can reduce that, then that's one way of improving your environmental footprint. If you're someone who flies frivolously and short-haul flights that you could alternatively take the train, then reducing that and making the shift towards train transport would help reduce your carbon footprint. On the other hand, micro-consumerist small actions of recycling this or switching this brand of cereal for the other brand of cereal, this is not transformational change that we need throughout the economy. The reality is that the collective action problem of getting nearly 8 billion people on the planet to work together to reduce emissions is insurmountable. And so what we need to do is have governments take the lead to make the default option greener. People are going to heat their homes, 
But if that heating is green energy, it's okay. People are going to be mobile and travel around the country. But if that's green, low-carbon transport, it's okay. Further up the supply chain, we can make those changes. The more acceptable it's going to be politically, and the more efficient it's going to be economically. Nicola, you, you want to come in there? I know you you've looked at, for instance, meat consumption and what that does. Yeah, yes, I fully agree with Matthew here. I think um, most of the environmental issues we face are like collective problem and in a, what we call a first best approach in economics, we should address them with collective instruments. And the collective instruments are uh, a tax, for instance, they could be, could be low. To me, what we see these days, these uh, repeated calls to in, in individual actions is a sign of political and institutional failure because it's very difficult for government institutions to agree and to go in the good direction. Then we rely on consumers. If you take climate change, it's very difficult to agree on an ambitious target. So then, at the end of the day, we ask uh, citizens, consumers, to make an effort to reduce their pollution. And meat consumption is a, one of the best examples of that. Regarding climate change, uh, agriculture is exempted from main regulations. It's also the case for air pollution or biodiversity, while meat is probably the main driver. And then, as an alternative, we suggest con that consumers should make an effort. But at the end of the day, I agree with you, it should be uh, the decision coming from government. But surely there won't be that pressure on government which is needed unless you kind of mobilise individuals. And one way of mobilising them is to give them an idea of what impact their own actions can have. Yes, I agree. We, we, need, uh, we need to measure the impacts. And there are measures. And there are some measures that show that uh, some actions are particularly efficient, in particular those regarding the use of coal, oil and meat. And so this is where we should target our policies. Christina, do you find people from outside the sphere ask you what I can do? And, and, and if so, what advice do you give them? I always say that it's a matter of actually individual choice. I see myself, I went to Glasgow and I saw all these nudges about the carbon emissions of each of the of the food you eat. And for me, that works. But may work for me, may not work for other people. So I think I agree with Matthew in the sense that globally we need or, or the governments need to facilitate the change. But people have a lot, a lot to say from, from the more bottom-up bottom up approach. The role of the government is basically to make this default option of green default option available for everybody without putting at risk certain segment of the population. And that's always tricky, how you communicate to a citizen that lives in a rural area that a carbon tax might not be harmful for them when they are seen actually it's harmful for them. So I think communication in that sense is one of the instruments or key soft instruments that we can use to bring citizens on board. So, for instance, would you like to see governments effectively making meat more expensive, pushing people in that way, using those kind of fiscal incentives? Because those would be quite controversial. That would be very controversial. Probably it won't be politically acceptable. And in certain countries, that is literally impossible. I mean, I'm just thinking countries like uh, Argentina with, with a high meat consumption in which these products are basically part of the culture. We can't, from a political point of view, establish this kind of, of policies. We can disincentivize this kind of consumption. If it's about making it 
more expensive, we have to give an alternative that is feasible and that is not more costly for citizens. Now, there is another movement, a more radical movement, which basically says we've got to abandon growth in the economy altogether. Reporting, as we as journalists do, the latest GDP figures and saying it's good if it's grown, which is obviously the assumption, is the wrong way forward. How does that fit in with your your outlook, with your research? And Matthew, are you a zero growth person? Absolutely not. In in none of the aspects of my lives am I, am I a, a, a zero growth person. <laughs> what really counts is growth of what? If we are targeting our entire discussion around growth of GDP or shrinking GDP, then you've already missed the plot. GDP is an imperfect and incomplete measure of the economy. It's only one lens through which to look at it. I like to use a different lens. And and the way that I describe it is, imagine you're running a bakery. The size of the pie you can produce in the future depends on the stock of ingredients in the pantry. Run out of ingredients in the pantry, tomorrow's pie is smaller. But GDP statistics only ever focus on the size of the pie, and they completely ignore what's going on in the pantry. And our economic pantry isn't just filled with milk and eggs and butter, as the bakers would be. It's filled with capital assets, with wealth, with nature, a stable climate system. And if we measured what's going on in the pantry, our economic pantry, these core ingredients of economic prosperity, we could say that growth in that is a good thing, which is different from saying that growth in GDP is necessarily a good thing. So you need a measure for natural capital. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. We need to measure nature as an asset. It generates contributions into the economy in the same way that any factory or piece of equipment in the factory does. We can invest in forests and they will retain water. They will purify air. They will host biodiversity. They will prevent floods. And those are all beneficial services for the economy. Or we can degrade our forests and we lose those services. So we need to measure the natural capital, and that includes all of our ecosystems. It includes a stable climate system and healthy, clean air and safe drinking water. But natural capital alone won't do it. We need to think about all of the other assets in combination, the human capital, the social and the physical capital as well. If we start talking in these terms, the discussion about growing or shrinking GDP becomes an afterthought. But Nicola, I mean, GDP is the kind of be all and end all in a a lot of countries' attitudes to their economy. It's going to take quite something to get them to to change that, isn't it? And to get economists, frankly, macroeconomists in particular, to to say, you know, when we told you about GDP growth and we we told you that two quarters of negative growth equals a recession, forget all about that. We're, We're moving into a new world. Yes, GDP is uh, is used a lot, and it, what is nice with GDP is that it's a common matrix. People understand in general what we mean uh, when we talk about GDP. But I fully agree with Matthew. We need to move away from this simple matrix and add other metrics, in particular to be more precise about the damage to the environment. And I would add uh, one thing here. I think we should nevertheless explain that to get a any type of measure, there are some values inside. And the measure depends on values. For instance, we are going to have some uh, discount factor, which reflect how much we value future generation. We are going to use some approach like willingness to pay, which reflect 
how much people value the environment, for instance. And one, I think, of a big blind spot of uh, economics and most sciences, I would say, is anthropocentrism. At the end of the day, the only values that matter are human values. You mentioned the Das Gupta report on biodiversity. It's an anthro, it's a wonderful report, but it's anthropocentric. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the fact that we conserve species for humans. And if we listen to experts in ethics and in philosophy, that's morally crazy to do that. So I would be even more ambitious than Matthew, and I think we need to also account for the intrinsic value of nature, not only the anthropocentric value of nature. So there are two very exciting and interesting issues we're discussing now. One is growth versus degrowth. And I think your position on that depends on growth or degrowth of what. The other, though, that I'm really interested to explore more, the intrinsic value of nature. So I've done a lot of work in environmental economics on how do you value environmental goods and services that are not traded in markets. Things like how do you value an improvement in air quality or an improvement in the water quality of a lake? Uh, and we've got loads of different methods for doing this. Um, but we always caveat this and note that these values, these methods that we've developed over the past 30 years are entirely anthropocentric. And one of the reasons is because we don't know how we could reflect non-human values. Is it possible for a human to reflect that, Nicola? So I agree with you that we don't. And I tend to agree with you that we don't know how to do it. But to me, it's, it's a, of course, it's a quite of a weak justification. I think the, the best response to that is not to ignore the intrinsic value of nature, as we do now, is instead to change a bit our research focus in order to try to, uh, to account for that. At this point, there is very little research effort in order to capture the intrinsic value of nature, in particular the value of sentient animals, as recommended by uh, philosophers. Matthew, we've talked a lot about GDP and growth in relation to nature and, and valuing it, but there are other areas too. I think you're a bit of an expert on green finance, for example. Um, <laughs> Tell us about that. There are loads of self-styled experts on green finance. <laughs> How do we finance the transition towards a more sustainable economy or a net zero economy? It's going to take, best estimates, 50 to $90 trillion worth of new investment in infrastructure, in buildings, in energy systems, in transportation, in new technologies, in changing the way that we do agriculture the way that we clothe ourselves, absolutely everything in the economy is going to need to undergo some form of the transformation. And that's not going to come for free. So how do we mobilize 50 to 90 trillion? And what have the policies that we've developed so far actually committed and contributed? One of the major sticking points at COP, it was something called the Green Climate Fund. This was promised back in 2009 in Copenhagen that rich countries would provide $100 billion a year of finance to poor countries in order to help them decarbonize and adapt to climate change. We haven't made it. The estimates of how much have actually been delivered, actually committed, range from around $10 billion, if you ask the Indians, to around $85 billion, if you ask the OECD, a group of wealthy countries. Big gap there, big gap. Exactly. It's a huge gap. And it's because there's no clear definition of what constitutes green finance. But remember, I started by talking about the 50 to 90 trillion, and now I'm talking about almost 100 billion. 
It's a rounding error. Does it matter when we're talking 50 to 90 trillion if I'm really talking about 50.1 to 89.9 trillion? No, we don't care about that decimal point. But it takes up so much of the political landscape that it becomes actually a sticking point. So what we need to do is understand the fact that there is no path to net zero based purely on public investment. The only way to get there is to crowd in private finance. And in order to do that, we have to use public funds to leverage private finance. And that's why I'm excited by some of the statements that have come out of COP26, and particularly around Article 6, the rulebook for international carbon markets. If we get that right, then the private sector can really jump in to help finance decarbonization. Christina, are you excited by anything that's come out of COP26? And are are you seeing any impact of this gradual process of, of bringing nature into the economy, making it something that people actually think about? I'm excited about all the parallel progress that has been made through the through the meeting. I understand that the processes of United Nations are very difficult, if not impossible, to bring to the table 190-something parties to sign on, on language, basically, and to bring consensus. So all the parallel agreements and all the parallel bilateral actions that we've been seeing during the last two weeks are the ones that make me feel optimistic and and hopeful. We have seen all this Glasgow breakthrough agenda on investment in innovation and so on from a set of 40 countries. This, of course, doesn't include the 190 parties of the UN, but it's already a starting point to make clear what Matthew mentioned, that certain countries received the technologies, that we fostered technology transfer, that we develop capacity building in these countries to continue decarbonizing uh, the economies to the extent that we need as fast as we can. I I want to think that they see the basis for where are we going, for where we are going, sorry. And now what we have to do basically is to take the policies right. How do we design this? I know your 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 speciality is energy, and actually there are reasons to be cheerful about what's happened in the last ten years. I mean, renewables have made great progress, and the economics of you know, for instance, wind and and, and solar made great progress. And we've seen this sudden transition to electric motoring that we kind of didn't expect to happen that quickly. Is, is that is that fair? That is fair, uh, Rory. Actually, I mean, I've been participated in this project, Economics of Energy Innovation and System Transitions. And what we've seen is exactly that models haven't been able to accurately measure the extent to which costs have decreased and reduced in the last 20 years. We've seen that incredible cost reductions in offshore wind, incredible cost reductions in, in solar PV, and this is the result of market shaping policies. So if the government goes there and leapfrog, the private sector will follow up, and we are seeing crowding in effects on this and not crowding out effects. So we need bold policies, market shaping policies from the governmental side, and the private sector will follow up. Nicola, I think I saw you shaking your head there on uh, on our video conferencing software. Yeah, no, it's just I, I agree with what was said, but I would be uh, more skeptical about uh, the COPs in general. To me, it doesn't work. This shows, I mean, uh, 
countries made pledges in COP21 in Paris six years ago. And we, what we see is that we have, uh, what we have done so far is not much. Uh, we are not mo moving away essentially from uh, the polluting economy as we see. So the method doesn't change. We should change it. This uh, game of pledges, uh, always in 20 years, uh, into, in 2060, for instance, they are very ambitious agreement. It doesn't work. So we should have something else. Probably uh, some economists uh, have proposed a club of uh, countries that decide about ambitious targets and uh, putting some, um, for instance, some carbon tax at the frontier of a club and who want to join has to pay the tax and uh, implement some, some ambitious policies. The current policy game, political game, doesn't work. We should change it. Matthew, do you agree? I think there are very few people who have been more historically skeptical of the COP system than I am. Maybe the 26th time is the charm. <laughs> not really how the saying goes, is it? So uh, look, I, I'm open to all sorts of criticisms of COP. I think we also have to be open to the fact that this is a consensus-driven process. And maybe consensus is not the way to go, but that's what the COP is. And every country has to agree. And if that's the case, then everything is inherently going to be watered down. This is COP26. It's the first time that coal and fossil fuels have been included in the draft of the text. Now, that might tell you that for a quarter of a century, we've been trying to deal with climate change without talking about fossil fuels, and most of us would think that's quite a silly thing to try to do. But it also tells us that at this one, at least, we've started to make that step. So it's not quite the progress we would want, but it's something. I'd also point out that COP does not prevent us from also introducing carbon taxes. The EU has developed the emissions trading scheme even though COP hasn't provided this for the entire world. So it doesn't prevent necessarily. I think, yes, a healthy degree of skepticism is absolutely required. But although it's tough, especially for economists, we should try not to let that degrade into an unhealthy degree of cynicism. Now, I've, I feel we're moving towards a close, and I'd like to ask you whether you as academics feel frustrated by the fact that it's taken so long for policymakers to listen to your arguments, and whether you feel that's your fault or theirs. Christina, let's hear from you on that. Thank you, Rory. That's a tough question. I think probably it's both sides. Probably academia has been perceived uh, sometimes as these people in the ivory tower, and we haven't been able until very recently to co-design and work hand in hand with, with governments. I want to think that this paradigm is, is changing. I mean, the example is that more and more governments are asking us that we have, for example, here in the University of Cambridge, this program with CSAP, the Center for Science and Policy, in which actual public servants come to speak to, to academics and try to understand what we are doing and how can we contribute to the policy, to the policy landscape. It's taken a lot, yes. It's taken too long, yes. But we are going there, I think. Uh, of course, we are running out of time. Of course, these steps are just uh, needed, but no way sufficient. So the next 10 years are going to be key in actually delivering goals in terms of everything, environment, economy, sustainability, biodiversity, ecosystems, and More and more economists are aware of these issues. Some policymakers are um, able to listen because the evidence is clear. Nicola, are they listening to you? Uh, 
You know, I'm, I'm working a lot on meat consumption, and I can tell you that in France, policymakers, politicians do not listen to me much. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? Steak frites is still <laughs> part of uh, every French citizen's right, is that it? Yeah, yeah. as Christina suggested before, it's, um, it's a very difficult political issue, uh, so social issue as well. It relates to culture, identity, and uh, it's very difficult to um, design, identify uh, optimal policies there. So it's extremely difficult. And also there are very um, strong ties between the industry and politicians. This is true for, the, of course, for agriculture, for food, for meat, but this is true also for all the problems we have also discussed before, energy, uh, coal, oil, and so on. And Matthew, we know, don't we, that Cambridge University is in general incredibly influential amongst policymakers. Are they listening to you? I think they're listening to Cambridge University and the body of science and, and information that the institution delivers. I think that academia as a sector has not aligned the incentives of academics appropriately if the goal is to improve public policy. Most academics will be promoted on the basis of the research publications that they produce but they're impenetrable to policymakers. What's really exciting about the Bennett Institute is that we've kind of broken that link a little bit. And so we are more encouraged to engage directly with policymakers, and that's recognized in our context. If the rest of academia could do that, then it would deserve more influence in policy. But until it does that, I'm not sure. Well, thanks to our expert panel, Matthew Agawala and Christina Penyasco from the Bennett Institute and Nicola Tresch from the Institute of Advanced Studies in Toulouse. Today, we've discussed the many interactions between nature and the economy and why it's important to make these explicit. Let us know what you think of this edition of Crossing Channels. You can contact us via Twitter. The Bennett Institute is at Bennett Inst. The Institute for Advanced Study is IAS Toulouse. And I am at Ruskin147. Please join us next month when we'll have a new edition looking at another big research theme that Cambridge and Toulouse have in common. <laughs>